uh, kindergarten through or preschool through sixth grade can now be dismissed, if you would like, back to the meadow. And the rest of us, we can open our Bibles to the book of Job, if you're not already there. Because we want answers, don't we? We want answers, and we want them now. Wanting answers is hardwired into us as humans. As soon as we learn to speak, we're asking questions. Maybe parents, you can verify that this is true. We have three kids, and so our home is filled with questions. And by filled, I mean filled with questions. When there's a moment, yeah, when there's a moment of empty space, a question comes in to fill that silence. Questions, and then an answer to that question leads to another question, to another question, and on and on. It's, it's a great thing. It's part of how God made us, isn't it? To be curious, to want to learn and grow. And nowadays we have Google, we have virtual assistants, so we no longer actually have to open a book to find an answer. We can just ask Alexa or Google or any number of other virtual assistants that you may have access to. And this takes some of the pressure off as parents, doesn't it? Dad, how many dogs are there in the world? Hmm. Good question. Just ask Google. And so I direct my kids to ask Google. And yes, that is actually a question that was asked in our home, asked of Google and answered by Google. And in case you're curious, uh, at least 525 million dogs in the world. So you can file that away next time you're asked that question and you'll have the answer. But our kids have caught on rather quickly that dad doesn't always have the answers or at least a satisfactory answer to questions just like that one. So sometimes they just go straight to Google. They've learned because they want answers, right? We want answers and we want them right now. And this doesn't stop in childhood. Psychologist Jerome Kagan said that uncertainty resolution was one of the foremost determinants of our behavior. Can you relate to that? How many of us like some uncertainty resolution? Yeah, only a couple of us are honest in here, I see. Okay. I could use some uncertainty resolution in my life, right? But research shows that this drive is one of our strongest motivations that really affects so much of the rest of our lives, the decisions we make. We're so uncomfortable with uncertainty, with ambiguity, that we feel a pressure to find a concrete answer even when there isn't one. We want to insert a concrete answer so we have something that we feel we can hold on to. But what do we do when God on purpose puts us into a place of ambiguity, into a place of uncertainty? How do we respond? What if there's something we need more than uncertainty resolution? For all the wealth of knowledge that we have at our fingertips today, which is amazing, we still don't have neat and tidy answers to everything. Some of the biggest questions that humans ask, we still don't have neat and tidy answers to, particularly much of the mind of God, the way that he chooses to run the world. We continue our series in the book of Job, now nearing its conclusion. We've covered a whole lot of ground in the last 37 chapters. If you've been tracking with us, you have seen the book of Job is a book filled, filled with questions. Why do the righteous suffer? How can God be truly good and loving if he allows it? Is he really all-powerful and just when there's so much evil and injustice in the world? Does God have a purpose and plan for my life? And all the things that happen, are they really part of some cosmic plan? And on and on and on our questions go. Job and his friends have tackled these questions with the pinnacle of ancient Near Eastern wisdom. And at best, they've come up short. 
Their back and forth arguments remind us that we can never fully grasp the ways of God and that just maybe the meaning of the spiritual life isn't to have all the answers, to have everything figured out. So this book has held us so far in this tension, hasn't it? And most of us don't like that, if we're honest. We have so many questions for God, but will we ever get answers? Job has cried out repeatedly in this book for God to reveal himself, for God to answer these deep cries of his heart. And incredibly, in this text we look at this morning, God does. But it doesn't quite go as Job expects. In fact, God turns the tables and in effect says, actually, I'll be the one asking the questions. And so we'll look at God's answer to Job this morning, which we'll find out is mostly a series of more questions. And we'll see that God isn't just asking these questions of Job, but all of his people, and that includes us this morning. And that God has something better for us than uncertainty resolution in this text. So let's sit with Job as these questions come to us one after the other, and let's consider how we might answer. Would you bow with me? Well, Father, as we turn to your word, we acknowledge our total dependence on you. We acknowledge that these are your words, first spoken and recorded millennia ago, and yet they're still relevant, they're still for us today. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to this truth from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at Job chapter 38, if you're not already there, Job chapter 38. Last week we saw Elihu enter the scene and he corrects Job and his friends. Elihu, of all of Job's friends, gets the closest to truth here. He gets the closest to all of them, of making sense of things. Suffering, he says, is not punishment for something wrong you've done, but God uses uh, God uses suffering for our growth and for his glory. Back in chapter 33, Elihu rebukes Job for saying that God doesn't answer. He insists God does answer and that God guides his people even though we don't always perceive it. And it turns out Elihu was right. In this case, God is about to answer Job in a way that he won't miss and that we can't miss. So look at Job 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Don't miss the weight of these words. After all the pain and the apparent silence of God and the wrestling, God shows up. Job's been crying out for this moment from the beginning. It's his final word in chapter 31. Job says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Let the Almighty answer me. What is Job expecting from this encounter? Maybe a bill of indictment? He says, hey, if I'm truly guilty, as my friends claim, then let God bring the charges against me and give me a chance to answer for myself, to defend myself. But he's, of course, maintained his innocence, so he's asked for vindication from his judge. That's what he wants most. That's what he expects because he's innocent, and we know that he is. And we assume Job would also be satisfied if God maybe answered the questions of why. Many of the questions that we bring to this text. Why is this happening to me if you're both good and just? So does God meet any of Job's expectations? Let's find out. Look again at the text. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job expects God to answer his questions and ours, but God says, I... I have some questions for you. What do we make of this? What do we make of this? God has just started speaking and already 
We're shocked. We're surprised. What's happening here? God answers some of the biggest questions in of all of humanity. All of the biggest questions, some of the biggest questions that we have about God, he answers them with more questions. And a lot of questions. The Lord here has two speeches, really can be broken up. Chapters 38 and 39 are the bulk of the first speech, and chapters 40 and 41 is the second. And it's almost all questions. So our first reaction here may be one of frustration. And we're, we're with you, Job. We have some questions for God, too. Maybe some of the same ones. But he doesn't seem to answer them. So the first may seem even cruel. God, are you just showing up just to wield your power, just to remind Job and us that you have the answers and we don't? But before we give into that frustration, let's let's pause, let's back up for just a minute. And remember all the questions that God asks throughout the Bible, not just in the book of Job. Why does God, who knows everything, ask questions? Can't be because he doesn't know the answer. Starting all the way back in Genesis, in the garden after the fall, God called out to Adam and Eve with a question. Where are you? To Jonah, sitting outside Nineveh, God asked, why are you angry? Jesus asked a lot of questions in his earthly ministry. His first words in the Gospel of John are, what are you looking for? Our men's groups did a study of many of God's questions in the Bible, and we found that questions are not only one of the best ways that God has decided to teach us, but they're the most effective way to get to the heart, to bring transformation. It's so tempting to think that all we need are more answers, and in the spiritual life, all we need is more Bible knowledge so I can control my world, more facts. Ah, but we're not in control are we? As God so clearly reminds us with these questions. Questions do so much more than straight answers can. They draw us in as listeners. They make us consider the reasons behind the question. They make us own the answer personally. I mean, we want to be spoon-fed neat and tidy answers, but God would rather mature us. God would rather mature us than spoon-feed us answers. So while these questions aren't the answer we're maybe looking for, it's still an answer. One God decided is much more needful for his people. As we've seen from the beginning of this series, more of God is really what we need the most. More of God. So let's hear these questions with open hearts. Of course, we can only hit some of the highlights of these chapters, so I implore us to spend some time this week just meditating prayerfully on the entirety of chapters 38 through 41, these words of God to Job and to us. All scripture is God's word, but there's something unique when it's God's voice himself speaking. You get the sense we're standing on holy ground. So let's listen together as God's voice comes to us from this storm. Job 38 and verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Of course, we weren't there when God created the universe. This first question sets the the theme of God as creator, sovereign over his whole creation. In poetic language, God asked Job about every corner of the created world. Verses 8 through 11, he says, "Who Who set the boundaries of the sea? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? God established the rising and the setting of the sun. These words are beautiful in their poetry, and they draw us to 
bow in awe before this all-powerful creator God. But God is not dodging Job's question. We need to get that straight right now. Verse 13, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Did you catch that? Imagine a sunrise spreading, reaching out over the horizon, and those who commit crimes in the dark go running to hide. So God is applying this subject of himself as creator over all of creation. He's applying this theme to Job's questions, to our questions, whether God is running the world rightly or not. Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Even today, thousands of years after this book was written, with all our advances in science and ocean exploration, scientists still say more than 80% of our oceans have not been mapped, explored, or even seen by humans. We know more about the surface of the moon. We know more about the surface of Mars than we do about our own ocean floor. But God is saying, I know every inch of the great deeps. Not just the ocean, he says, but the realm of death, which is completely off limits to those of us living, completely beyond our sight. All of it equally is under God's sovereign, watchful care. If your Bible's in front of you, let's just scan down the text to just get the weight of this, the power, the beauty. Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Verse 24, what is the way to the place where light is distributed or the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? God's dominion extends beyond earth to the whole universe, to these stars and distant constellations that Job would have seen in the night sky and that we still see. So far, these questions reveal God as all-powerful creator who controls even the most extreme and distant elements of creation. Starting in verse 39 through all of chapter 39, God turns his attention to the animal kingdom, particularly wild animals, powerful animals, those not often tamed by humans. All creation is under God's dominion. And so before we go any further, let's just take another breath. If these questions were on an exam, I'm sure most of us would be acing the exam right now. It's like as a kid in Sunday school, you know, you learn the answers to most of the questions are God or Jesus or the Bible, right? The answers to these questions, at least to my estimation, are either no I don't know, or God. I think we can summarize this whole first speech into one question, really, and it's, are you God? Job is asking, God is asking Job, Job, are you God? By extension, he's asking us the same question, and of course the answer is obvious, it's a rhetorical question, but it draws us deeper. It draws us deeper. The question reminds me of the times when I think I know better than God. When I think God would do well to come around to my way of thinking. All these questions bring us to this foundational truth that God is God and we are not. It's a simple lesson. It's obvious. Yet it's one as humans we have to learn over and over again, isn't it? 
So we have to realize these words are ultimately loving toward Job. Certain words here, certain sections may strike us as a little harsh, but God's intention is not to humiliate Job or worse, to lay on the attacks like his friends have done. Not at all. God is giving Job true wisdom, which remember, the wisdom books tell us, is based on the fear of the Lord. As Francis Anderson writes, the highest nobility of every person is to be thus enrolled by God in his school of wisdom. So instead of neat and tidy answers that we may want at first, God gives us here something better. True wisdom with a glimpse at who he is. Look at chapter 40 and verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. God's first speech ends with this challenge and this invitation for Job to speak. Job, it's your turn. The floor is yours. Good luck. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Laying his hand over his mouth is a gesture of respect. Saying, I've spoken once, twice, that's an ancient Hebrew way of saying, I've spoken once too many times already, so I'll just, I'll just be quiet. But has Job gotten the point? I think he has, at least in part. But what we don't yet see from him is any sort of confession. It's still about him. He's not really saying anything yet about God. He's not confessing anything. Of course, Job was innocent of his suffering. He's still the righteous man that God affirms him repeatedly to be. And yet it seems in all the arguments, it seems in all of the defense of himself, it seems... He so loudly proclaimed his own innocence that he, at times, seems to elevate his own righteousness, maybe over God's grace in his life, as many of us are tempted to do. Chapter 32 tells us that Elihu that we saw last week, he was angry with Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. So while Job sees that God is God and he is not, God wants to take him a bit further. God wants to take us a bit further, too. Let's look at verse 6 of chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? So if God's first speech was more about this foundation of knowing our place rightly before God, this second speech that we're just now starting more directly addresses Job's questions. Can God be trusted with the way he runs the world? Look at verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. Wow. So being God isn't just a matter of having all power, is it? Being God, God is saying right here, has to do with also using that power rightly in a fallen world. Dealing with the wicked, bringing justice. 
So the first speech asks, are you God? In the second speech, God asks us an even more probing question. Do you trust me to do right? Do you trust me to do right? It's not, do you understand my ways? Because, hey, of course we don't. We're humans. It's not, do you agree with all my decisions? That's really beside the point. If we've really gotten a hold of that first question, are you God? And the answer to that first question, I think we'll see the invitation here to go a bit further is to grow in trust, to grow in faith. And so God's sovereignty over creation extends to his sovereignty over everything, even in our fallen world. And so his challenge to Job means that God alone will handle the wicked. Since Job can't meet that challenge, God is saying, hey, I've got this. Everything you see around you, the injustice, the wickedness, everything you guys have been arguing about, I've got it covered. Yes, there is evil. Yes, there is injustice. Yes, innocent people like you, Job, are suffering, but that's not the whole story. I want you to know that I see the whole story, so you're going to have to trust me. We don't have time to look at the rest of this speech in detail, but this second speech is all about these two creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. We don't know much about them. We don't know the identity of these animals. Some think they're known animals, like the hippopotamus for behemoth and maybe a crocodile for leviathan. But not all those descriptions seem to match. Others think that these could be extinct animals or even mythical creatures talked about in the ancient world. But the point is, let's try not to get too wrapped up in which animals God is talking about here. The point is, the point he's making about them. Leviathan gets most of the attention, really all of chapter 41. Look at chapter 41 and verse 1. Chapter 41 and verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The assumed answer here is no. Verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up Who then is he who can stand before me? The point here is there is a creature that no one is brave enough to stand before. And God says, you know what? I made him too. He also is a creature under me. In 2007, the crew of a New Zealand fishing boat hooked a Patagonian toothfish in the deep waters off Antarctica. And they realized something much bigger was also trying to catch this fish. And trying to swallow it. It took them over two hours and they finally hauled up one of the most mysterious and largest predators of the deep. A colossal squid. Almost 40 feet long. Weighing nearly a thousand pounds. Eyes as big as dinner plates. 25 razor sharp hooks at the end of its tentacles. Witnesses said if calamari rings were made from its tentacles they would be the size of tractor tires. I think a creature like that captures the sense of this passage. Who then can stand before me? The same God who created this colossal squid that humans have almost never seen and know very little about. It's almost terrifying to imagine being in the water and seeing one of these. Who then can stand before me? The poetic description of Leviathan includes sharp teeth, an armor-plated body, even breathing fire, which is similar to the ancient Near Eastern concept of this evil serpent, this evil dragon or sea monster. 
God started this speech talking about his dominion, his control over evil, didn't he? And then he turns to Leviathan. So he may be saying, even Satan, pictured in Scripture as a serpent, as a beast, is also just a creature. But even if real animals are meant here, the image is one of terrifying power. And we see terrifying power in the world today, don't we? From dangerous creatures like these to natural disasters to people doing evil things. And we are powerless to control any of it. But God says, I am sovereign over all of it. Do you trust me? Do you trust me to handle it? Now, we have a benefit that Job didn't have. We have all of the rest of Scripture. We know so much more about God's ultimate plan than Job did. We have more of God's promises of how he will one day end all evil and injustice. So we know that when God says to Job, Job, I've got this, ultimately God has the cross in mind. As the author of Hebrews writes, Jesus took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And that day will be finally fulfilled when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. As John writes in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We're still living in this time of former things, aren't we? Until that day comes, can we trust God to run the world rightly, even when we don't understand his ways, even when his plan means great suffering for us? Can we submit to his rule? And so God's speeches to Job come to an end, and we're left with this final question in the silence. How will you respond Let's see how Job responds. Look briefly at chapter 42 and verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now comes the confession. Now comes the repentance. Job didn't get exactly what he was looking for here, but he got so much, something so much greater, an encounter with God himself. How about you? How do you respond to God's word here? If you don't know Christ, these chapters are an invitation to trust the sovereign God with your heart. A God beyond our understanding revealed himself most fully in the person of his son, as we heard in the call to worship in the book of Hebrews. His son who died in our place so we could have life. God invites us not to wait for all of our questions to be answered, but to trust him. And so if you don't know Christ, will you trust Jesus, what he did for you? As believers who have already professed our trust in God to handle our eternal salvation, can we trust God with our everyday lives? Can we take a step further in our faith? Can we grow just a bit deeper in our faith to trust him? Can we affirm that his will is best? Can we affirm not just with words but with actions that his presence is our greatest good? 
In this Lent season, as we wait for Easter, maybe God is stirring your heart. Maybe God has spoken to you from this text. Maybe there's something in your life that's getting in the way of a closer walk with God, and you need, like Job, to repent. Maybe it's a new commitment to time and scripture or prayer practice as God would draw you closer to him. We have the provision of Christ to draw on to grow deeper in our walk. So how is the Spirit leading you to respond to these words? Well, God has spoken, finally. After all this time, after all this, these chapters, after all these arguments, God has spoken to Job, and for Job, it was enough. God has spoken to us, ultimately in the person of his Son. His final answer to our most important questions is the cross and the resurrection. In Christ, we have a sure and certain hope, forever reconciled to God, made citizens of his unshakable eternal kingdom. How's that for uncertainty resolution? So can we face the uncertainty now in our everyday lives with a freedom, with a growing dependence rather than fear? Can we trust him with our jobs, with our finances, his direction for our lives? With his sovereign care of our country? Can we trust him with our church, with our kids, with our relationships, our health, our suffering? We want answers, and that's not going to change anytime soon, right? It's human nature. But what we really need is more of God. And in Christ, we have it. With the Spirit's presence with us, we have it. And so instead of putting all our energy into seeking answers and trying to find more comfort and more security and more illusion of control in our lives, may we grow. May we grow to seek him with that same urgency, that same longing, and we might grow closer to him. Would you bow with me? I close with a prayer by Joseph Allen. Lord God, what will your servants say to you? We are silenced with wonder and must sit down in astonishment. We cannot utter the least of your praises. What does the height of this strange love mean? What does it mean to us that the Lord of heaven and earth should condescend to enter into covenant with dust? We are not worthy to be your sons and daughters and to be made partakers of all these blessed liberties and privileges you have settled on us. But for your goodness sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things. Even so, Father, because it seemed good in your sight. This is why you are great, O God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. Amen. Let us stand together.